Why is Montesquieu important for liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jacob Levy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jacob Levy. Jacob is Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Chair of the Department of Political Science, and Associated Faculty in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. His areas of research include liberal and constitutional theory, federalism and local self-government, multiculturalism and nationalism, freedom of association, and the history of political thought, especially centered on the 18th century in Montesquieu, which is what we'll be discussing today. He's also the author of many books and articles, including Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, and the multiculturalism of fear. Jacob has also been on The Curious Task with me three times before, and we encourage you to check out those chats as well. Jacob, welcome back again to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me back again. It's great to have you on as always, Jacob. So our question today is, why is Montesquieu important for liberalism? And I think this is a great opportunity for us to discuss and introduce Montesquieu as a thinker to folks who may be unfamiliar or haven't heard of him at all, actually. And we can tour some of his contributions to the tradition of liberalism as well. But first, quick question. Maybe it's an unfair one, but do you personally have a hard time remembering his full name perfectly off the top of your head? The Baron Charles Louis de Seconda de Montesquieu. Beautiful. That works out. Or just known, known as Montesquieu, I guess, for our purposes today. So in, in, on a more serious note, of course, at a high level, let's start with this. So, so who was Montesquieu? Before we get into some of his thinking, can you provide us some context for his life, his social status, the, the time he found himself in? Let, let's paint that contextual picture first. Sure. Um, Montesquieu was a, uh, a prominent French intellectual of the primarily the first half of the 18th century. Uh, he was born to the nobility and in particular born to what was referred to as the nobility of the robe in the ancien regime french distinction between the nobility of the sword the ancient families of the hereditary noble aristocracy who dated back to being the officers of the army uh, in charlemagne's time or in subsequent generations of the very early french monarchy the nobility of the robe, unlike the nobility of the sword, was a relatively recent vintage, and people were elevated to the nobility in virtue of their uh, governmental or administrative service. Montesquieu's family had been elevated to the nobility of the robe, and the old line nobility of the sword looked down on the nobility of the robe. This was one of the important class distinctions of the Ancien Regime. But nonetheless, a member of the nobility. Uh, the particular office to which Montesquieu was heir was as a member of the Parlement of Bordeaux and for a time as president of the Parlement of Bordeaux. The Parlements weren't what we hear when in English you say Parliament. They weren't in a legislature. They were something very close to being a, a court. They were primarily a, a judicial entity. There was one in Paris, and there were a dozen scattered around the provinces in France. And Montesquieu was a jurist in, and for a time, president of uh, the provincial parlement at Bordeaux. It heard uh, high-level cases, cases involving members of the nobility, and served as 
what Montesquieu would come to call a repository of the laws. In order to adjudicate a court case, you need to be able to look up what the laws are. And so courts maintain very comprehensive libraries of what the laws are that pertain in a particular place. And in the Ancien Regime France, that's a complicated task because there are a variety of sources of law of all kinds of different levels of antiquity, some of them written and codified, many of them unwritten but needing to be made accessible to courts, and some of them coming from Paris. I dwell on this because one of the uh, constitutional oddities of Ancien Regime France was that when the king wished to make new law-like policy, he couldn't actually make law. The understanding of the king's power was not that he was in his own person a legislator, but he could issue edicts, he could issue commands. If the edict was sufficiently like a rule, sufficiently like a law, then in order for it to have legal effect, it would have to be received into the court's repositories of the laws. And the noble judges of the parlements, particularly the Parliament of Paris, would sometimes say, Your Highness, you surely didn't mean to change or break the law of France, um, but since you're not a professional jurist and we are, we will send you a gentle letter letting you know that we decline to enter your edict into the rule books mm. because it is not in compliance with the law of France. Uh, um, a very powerful king had the ability to cow the court into changing its mind, appearing in person, reading the edict into the rule books in person. Uh, but kings who weren't Louis XIV couldn't necessarily win those fights. Right. <clears throat> Which is to say, the parlements had a kind of proto version of judicial review. And this is an important part of Montesquieu's developing constitutional theory. This is all the long way around to answering the question, who is Montesquieu? Right. But here, here the biography enters into the mature theory. Because Montesquieu's theory includes not only the importance of a judiciary that can stand against a king, but also the importance of a nobility that can stand against a king. And in Montesquieu's account, what it is that allows a judiciary to be truly independent and to say no and to enforce quasi-constitutional law, quasi-constitutional limits on a monarchy, is in part that they have the social standing to do so. Mm. Uh, and so while he didn't actually spend very much of his life at the Parlement of Bordeaux, the day-to-day -day legal work bored him, uh, it left an influence on his thought. Having, having spent his time as jurist, he then entered into the intellectual currents of uh, 18th century France, took part in salon life, took part in discussions about science and philosophy, wrote uh, one of the best-selling novels of the 18th century, at first anonymously, though subsequently claiming credit for it, The Persian Letters, which was a social satire taking the form of letters written primarily between two Persian visitors to France, that is, outsiders able to observe what was going on in contemporary society and comment on it from an outsider's point of view. 
as well as their letters back and forth from France to Persia. Uh, and it was the Persian letters that made Montesquieu an intellectual celebrity. He then did a few other pieces of intellectual work over the succeeding three decades while working on his masterpiece, The Spirit of the Laws. The Spirit of the Laws, which is mostly what we'll talk about today, uh, is, to my reckoning, the first great work of social and political thought of what becomes then the Enlightenment. Mm. In, in lots of conventional ways, we think of the Enlightenment as really taking off, starting around 1750. Um, the work of the encyclopedists, the work of Rousseau, uh, shortly thereafter, the work of people like David Hume, and then later Adam Smith and Immanuel Kant, all follow. The spirit of the laws sets an intellectual agenda and breaks new ground shows the possibility of something like applying the intellectual tools of modern scientific rationality and historical scholarship to basic questions of political thought and comparative politics. Very interesting. And, and I, that, that's an excellent overview, and I'm going to drill down in a couple of specific areas uh, of, of what you trace there. But before I move on any further on that, I, actually, I just wanted to ask you as well, um, in, in I think I think it was the first or second episode we recorded together. You briefly mentioned like you know how important Montesquieu was was as a thinker to you, and uh, and I think you even used the term something something along the lines of like it was one of your intellectual heroes or something like that. And uh, mm-hmm. and and just just out of curiosity, like other other than some of the details you've traced, how how has he been important to, to you to your thinking, and and why do you appreciate his work so much? Just on a personal note, I'm just curious. Oh, uh, I'll. I think I'll say just two things, though, knowing me, I might wander off into a third or a fourth. By all means. Um, The first thing is Montesquieu's distinctive uh, approach to doing normative political and constitutional theory in conversation with very empirically and historically rich political and social science. Uh, His account of what it is to have good government, moderate government, free and open government is one that's very informed by his engagement with the politics of his time and the historical and social circumstances that have shaped the politics of his time. He doesn't do what people in political philosophy in the last generation have referred to as ideal theory. He's not imagining political norms and imposing them on the world. He's trying to work at the overlap and the intersection of the normative and the empirical. This is very important to me. I'm a political theorist trained within political science and Mm. uh, spending my life in political science departments. That is a kind of work to which I aspire. The second is Montesquieu's deep attention to cruelty and the avoidance of cruelty and the effort to build up a politics that has an importantly negative face. His political theory is about the avoidance of evils. He doesn't, at least on the surface, um, he doesn't on the surface tell us what the best form of government is. He spends a lot of time talking about various regime types. But unlike the classical tradition of political thought, he doesn't conclude his analysis of regime types by saying, and here's the reason why monarchy 
ruled by a philosopher is the best of all regimes, or here's the reason why um, a mixed regime with the aristocracy having them following power is the best of all regimes. What he does, however, is tell us what's the worst. All of the moderate forms of government, democratic republic, aristocratic republic, and monarchies are all legitimate viable contenders. What's not is despotism. What's not is a government that rules lawlessly, without due process of law, without legal protections, without what we would call civil liberties and procedural liberties, ruling by means of inflicted terror. And that negative orientation, not only as a mood to doing political theory, but in particular substance, um, the joining of the rule of law to the avoidance of the infliction of fear and the avoid the avoidance of ruling by fear. That's been something to which I've tried to be attentive throughout my whole career and something that always brings me back to Montesquieu. Right. Yeah. And that's interesting. You just touched on that at the very end, because I did write down something to actually talk to you about on that exact note that in other words, like you're very interested in the fact that I think you said here, just to quote you, you know, his is not the kind of political theory that is concerned with identifying the best, but rather, as you said later, more, talk about the worst and how to avoid it. I thought those were very interesting that you just sort of put it in that way because, you know, it's also, it's also you know, as you said, when we get into these other discussions, often we're imposing ideals or talking about what the best could be. But as you said, with that negative face in his thinking, I, th- I think that's very interesting. So let's now pivot into talking about the spirit of the laws. As you said in, in, in our the introduction to our conversation here, when you're tracing sort of the biographical information, this is sort of looked at as a magnum, magnum opus. This is his great work. Let's first introduce the audience in general. What's going on in the spirit of the laws? We'll talk about some follow-ups and some concepts in a second, but but what is this grand work? What is he attempting to do here? Okay, uh, I'll I'll start with divisions into three and into six, um, because the spirit of the laws is organized into six parts that come in three pairs. The first two parts are the regime analysis. Uh, using some of the same language and ideas that we find in regime analysis dating back to ancient Greek political thought, though reworking them in important ways. And by regime analysis, I mean this comparison among monarchy, aristocracies, democracies, and despotisms. I say he reworked the tradition because the traditional uh, distinction had Six regime types, three good and three bad. Monarchy and tyranny, aristocracy and oligarchy, um, a mixed regime or polity, and a democracy. Montesquieu did away with some of those categories in order to concentrate our attention in the negative case on despotism, which was the degenerate form of an extreme form of rule by one man. The regime analysis was an account of what it is that animates and makes sense of and makes possible each of the different regime types. To take one famous example that was to go on to have a big effect in, on the American founding, he has an account of the size of different countries. It is uh, best and most appropriate and most functional. If democratic republics are very small states, like the city-states of ancient Greece or like the city-state in Montesquieu's own time of Geneva, a place where the people could genuinely come together 
to debate political issues. And if a democratic republic is accordingly a very egalitarian and non-commercial place where people can devote themselves to the public business, not to their private business. Aristocratic republics were somewhat larger than that, and monarchies were larger still. And it made sense for a state of the size of England or France to be a monarchy. With despotisms characteristically being very large, a place like Russia or China, a continental-sized political society. This is going to be important in the United States because the Americans set about to organize a continental-sized democratic republic. And they were very concerned with Montesquieu's warning about the reasons why that didn't make sense. But that's, that's an example of the kind of analysis that happens in parts one and two. Parts three and four are about what we might think of as non-political social science, non-political sources for constraints on the possibilities of politics. Part three is, uh, in large part, though not exclusively, about geography and climate. Here are ways in which um, cold countries end up having different needs and facing different constraints than hot countries. Here are ways in which coastal countries face different opportunities and different constraints from landlocked countries. Always trying to draw in historical examples as well as contemporary cases as illustration, but always in a way that punctures the aspiration to just design an ideally best set of laws that can be generalized. That's part three. Part four, which I think pairs with part three in in this sense, though it also in the book appears like a kind of new beginning. Part four is about commerce. It's one of the first major works of political economy. And it's an argument about the ways in which economic forces have reshaped politics, reshaped the possibilities for politics and law, and continue to do so, uh, such that the European societies of Montesquieu's own age, which was an age of increasingly global commercial trade, simply faced very different sets of constraints, sets of possibilities and futures than had been imagined in the dreams of ideal legislators in the tradition up until then. And parts five and six are about different sources of law. Part five is about religion. Religion understood not primarily as a source of morality or knowledge about divinity, but as a source of authoritative rules that people live by. And how it is that source of authoritative rules coexists with the rules of the civil law, the rules of commercial law, the rules of monarchical governance, and so on. Uh, something like what we would now call church-state relations, but broader than that because taking more seriously the demands of religion as codes by which people live. And part six is the constitutional history of France, written as a history of the competing different legal systems that had gone into making up the kingdom of France 
since its origin. And throughout books, parts five and six, there's a concern with the ways that these different various legal systems introduce complexity, often for the good, often introducing possibilities of freedom as people move back and forth between one legal system and another, not always to the good, but always in a way that constrains the possibilities, constrains the freedom of movement and the freedom of decision of the would-be lawmaker in, at the center of political society. So, so and, and, and the work as a whole, uh, you, you, you've said in, in an essay you've written about it, that it offered the second half of the 18th century new ways of thinking about not only government itself, but about but about the traditional, oh, sorry, excuse me, but about the relationship among government, society, and the economy that went beyond the traditional analysis of the citizen and the state. So is it, is it too much simplification to say that before in some of the great, greater works of other thinkers, you would have exactly that, right? Like a discussion about the state and how it's made up or whatever form of power is at play and the, the citizen on the other hand, whereas, is again, is it too much of an oversimplification to say that Montesquieu was one of the first, if not the first people to sort of think about all that political economy, if you will? Um, I, I think that's just right. Um, if we compare Montesquieu to Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, which comes a century before, or John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, which comes 60 years before, Hobbes and Locke both offer accounts imagining individual persons coming together to make decisions. And the decisions they make will set up the fundamental rules of their society. That social contract is then the founding act. Everything else arises from those decisions. Montesquieu's theory is one in which there's a great deal that happens without human decision. And the rise of modern commerce and the economic history of the world that's traced out in part four uh, is a critically important example. The transformation in the economy of the world was not something that any legislator decided, and it's not something that any single society's social contract had decided or called into being. It's a force significantly outside of and prior to political decisions. And that was a revolutionary change in the way that people thought about doing political theory, thinking about political options and political choice. Excellent. And I think we're about at that time to take a break. It might make the beginning and the end a little lopsided against each other, but I think that's a good part of the conversation to do so. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Rosa Pajarello, and Sabine Elchidiak. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jacob Levy today. So, Jacob, jumping right back in from where we left off in, in, in the first half, we were just, you gave us an overview of what the spirit of the laws is, and we started talking about some of the key ideas in it. 
I wanted to dive into one more specifically here too. And it's just a general idea that's attributed to Montesquieu all the time. For instance, if I remember correctly, if you head to the Wikipedia page for Montesquieu, you know, notable ideas. This is the one I want to talk about. The separation of powers. Obviously, this is a discussion that's influential as we go along on the timeline of intellectuals and thinkers as well. But can we talk about Montesquieu's take on the separation of powers, how it contributed to thinkers later, and so on and so forth? I want to zone in on this specific concept for a little bit here. Sure. Great. Um, Montesquieu is the originator of the doctrine of the separation of powers as we have had it ever since. Um, He canonizes the distinction among executive, legislative, and judicial power as being the basic organizational, uh, the, the basic organizational structure of constitutional government. Locke, to return to that contrast, Locke had talked about relationships among the governing powers. But the powers that he discussed were legislative, executive, and federative. What is federative? Federative is foreign policy. The federative power is different from the executive power. Why? Well, because the executive power is the authority to enforce the laws that the legislature has passed. Whereas the federative power is the relatively lawless work in the international sphere, the work of war and peace and diplomacy. But they're not different people. It is almost inevitably the same person or the same institution that wields executive power and federative power. The distinction between them is normative and logical, not institutional. The judiciary doesn't figure in Locke's arrangement of different powers. Why uh, is a complicated question. It's my view that Locke viewed the whole system of government as in some important part having a judicial function, and he actually didn't want to elevate the status of the courts and judges in particular Mm. at the expense of the judicial understanding of the whole system. Montesquieu makes the courts, makes the judges into constitutional level political actors and says, If there is to be freedom in a society, there must be separation among the moment and the institution when a rule is enacted, a prospective impersonal rule, like do not kill, do not steal, here's how you enter into contracts, any of those impersonal prospective rules, and the moment when the rule is applied to a particular case as when a judge evaluates whether the facts about what I've done meet the standard of the rule. Have I made a contract? Have I committed murder? Which must in turn be separated from the violent power of enforcement. It's not the judge who has the authority to put me in prison or put me to death. That's the separate agency that controls the police and the prisons, the executive, the monarch. And only when those are each institutionally distinct from each other. Montesquieu says, uh, do we have full protection of freedom? Meaning that a person knows they will be safe from arbitrary imprisonment, arbitrary punishment, seizure by the king's police, execution as an enemy. We know that we'll be safe because we know what the laws are. And we know that we won't be punished unless... We violate a known law and are found guilty of it by an impartial 
tribunal. Simply separating legislature from executive isn't enough because the executive having all the violent power at his disposal has the ability to ignore the law, seize political enemies, punish them, and kill them. Real freedom is to be found in that three-part distinction, which means that the courts have to have the constitutional standing to say no to the executive. In the English tradition, they have the authority to issue a writ of habeas corpus, saying to the king or the king's guards, produce the defendant, bring the defendant's body, corpus, habeas corpus, bring the defendant's body physically, bring the defendant physically into a court. Don't just leave him locked up in a dungeon or in the Tower of London. He has to have a chance to have his day in court. That's an example of the kind of constitutional no-saying that the courts can do in Montesquieu's account. And there are French analogs. Likewise, the ability of the French parliaments to refuse would-be lawmaking by the king. Mm. That makes the king effectively accountable to law, which is always difficult to do because the executive, having control of all the violent apparatus of state power, has a tendency to accumulate power outside legal boundaries. So that's Montesquieu's account. He thinks that in his day, England has most perfected the separation of powers. He thinks that the other moderate monarchies of Europe have too much conflation between executive and legislative power. But as long as they have reasonably independent judiciaries, there's still some reasonable degree of freedom. And then he looks at the regimes he identifies as despotisms like the Ottoman Empire or Tsarist Russia and says there, there's no separation of powers at all. Um, the despot can make whatever rules he likes, ignore whatever rules he likes, and punish his enemies without regard to the question of whether they've broken rules or have been found guilty. That idea of the separation of powers gets picked up and canonized by the American founding. Mm -hmm. The American revolutionaries take it very seriously as a theory of what free government means. Uh, they don't necessarily know very much about the actual English constitution of their day. What they know is what they read in Montesquieu. Mm. And so they frame their constitutional practices, both in the 13 original state constitutions and then later in the federal constitution of 1787 around a very strong understanding of the separation of powers. And that goes on to shape the politics of liberal constitutional democracies from then on. Sometimes in a direct echo of the American system, sometimes in a more complicated adaptation as in the parliamentary constitutional democracies that took shape over the course of the 19th century. Uh, but always with attention to the courts, attention to the judiciary as constitutional actors and an attempt, even in parliamentary systems, to keep some meaningful breathing room between the moment and the institution of making a rule and the moment and the institution of enforcing the rule. And, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong when I say this, but at least I feel that one of the most you know distant echoes of all this, but nevertheless can be traced back to this thinking, is that even by cultural osmosis, most people would not 
uh, flinch or not know what we're talking about if we talk about you know colloquial checks and balances in a system and most people would you know grant that it's good to have the legislative separated from the judiciary which is separated from the executive even if they don't say it in those terms it seems to be sort of directly in, in the root of what many people feel in their gut should be something that's happening in, in a liberal democracy if they have that that liberal mentality generally yeah i i i think it has entered the intellectual dna of liberal constitutional democracies um even in parliamentary systems that some people deny have meaningful separation of powers i i, I think that's wrong i think there is a meaningful separation of powers in parliamentary regimes um and i think the language and vocabulary of it has has become very familiar has become almost a commonplace uh, and it's uh more than most big ideas that take that that have that level of long-term influence this is a big idea mm-hmm. that has an identifiable author and an identifiable date montesquieu constructed that doctrine he didn't construct the institutional fact he said that he was describing an ongoing practice in england but the idea that that's what constitutional freedom means and consists of and those are the three powers that's montesquieu 1748 right and shifting gears sort of but obviously everything connected here and over to a word that finds itself of course in in uh, in one of the titles of one of your books pluralism so it, it, in some of the things that you've written about montesquieu at a high level you've talked about him identifying sort of this to, you know, two things. One's a social pluralism, one's a legal pluralism. I just want to trace that at a, at a high level, if we will. Um, let's start because it's directly come off what we just talked about, uh, legal pluralism and Montesquieu's thoughts. What do you mean by legal pluralism and how do we plug that into some of the things we've been talking about? Um, this, uh, this is a separate doctrine from the separation of powers. Um, there, there are things in Montesquieu that people pull apart that I don't think can be pulled apart. I think the separation of powers has some important relationship to his theory of monarchy and aristocracy. Uh, but legal pluralism is meaningfully distinct from the separation of powers idea. Uh, indeed, he says that England of his day has significantly less of the kind of pluralism that he's appealing to than contemporary France does. And to that degree, he doesn't idealize the English system. England has the separation of powers, and that's good, but it has less pluralism, and that's bad. Legal pluralism is the idea that the binding norms and rules that govern in a society don't all issue from the same place or mind. In Ancien Regime France, it was notoriously the case that every city and every province had legal traditions of its own. There was great regional variation. Uh, Parts of France had carried over more or less continuously pieces of law and legal traditions from the fall of the Roman Empire and continued to be governed by local versions of Roman law that had passed down relatively without interruption. Much of France was governed by a long, long, long descendant of the Germanic law that the Franks brought when they conquered France. That relationship between the Germanic Frankish law and the Roman law is the beginning of Montesquieu's story about legal pluralism in France. It's only the beginning. Um, To that complication will be added complications having to do with cities and provinces, the feudal law of the nobility, 
very importantly, the canon law of the church and more. But that legal pluralism means that the people who go through life, living their life in law-abiding ways, according to the rules, are not necessarily all following the same rules. And even the very wisest and most powerful of monarchs shouldn't imagine that he has the ability to remake the legal system at the drop of a hat. This is importantly a check on monarchical ambition and ego and pride. It's also a check on a certain kind of philosophical pride because Montesquieu identifies many of the philosophers of traditional political philosophy as being aspirational legislators, people who imagine a legal system for a whole society. Montesquieu says a whole society has evolved laws in lots of different ways from lots of different sources, and that's fine. That's not something that we should dream of the day that we can get around to abolishing. Now, that dream uh, genuinely was the dream of the French revolutionaries. It had also, an important ex- uh, to an important degree, been a dream of Louis XIV, but Louis XIV hadn't succeeded in doing it. Uh, the French Revolution came much closer to effectively wiping out that legal pluralism uh, of different provincial laws, different city laws, the canon law of the church, and so on. But 40 years before the revolution, Montesquieu identified the value in having a plurality of overlapping legal systems and cautioned against exactly the kind of what he took to be intellectual hubris that's involved in remaking the legal system of a great society out of one set of mind and one set of decisions. And if we contrast that and now talk about social pluralism as opposed to legal pluralism, can you can you get a bit into that, what that is and, and Montesquieu's thoughts on that as well? Social pluralism is more than one thing, um, and what it is varies from place to place appropriately. Uh, the The short version is simply to say that a people is not a homogenous, unified thing. In a place like France, there were class distinctions, the two ranks of nobility, the difference between the nobility and the monarch, the difference between the nobility and the third estate or the commoners. There was um, still some lingering religious diversity, and Montesquieu was a great critic of the era of religious persecution that had expelled the Protestants from France and had subjected Jews to serious legal and political disabilities. He was a great advocate of uh, a much more capacious religious toleration. There was provincial and linguistic diversity. These provinces that I've been talking about over and over again weren't just judicial units. They weren't just administrative units. Um, They were places where people spoke different languages and belonged to importantly different what we would think of as ethnocultural traditions. Um, Brittany and Normandy are places of Celtic descent. Um, Provence is a place of an important degree of Roman descent. And Alsace-Lorraine are importantly German, not French. And that, that's a point of ongoing political importance well into the 20th century. France wasn't, in our sense, French. Making it, in our sense, French, that is making it a place where everybody spoke the language that was spoken in Paris, uh, 
and everybody identified themselves as being the descendants of the same people. That was a deliberate project, an ideological project of the century starting at the French Revolution. The social reality was one of social pluralism. And Montesquieu understood that, again, there's a drive on the part of rulers to suppress that, to ignore it, to pretend it's not true. And when the social pluralism insists on making itself felt, to try to force it to be true, to expel, for example, the Protestants in the name of avoiding religious pluralism. Um, this, by the way, is uh, I'm now more or less reciting key arguments from my first book, The Multiculturalism of Fear, mm. which was about the ways in which cultural pluralism is a stubborn fact in the world and a stubborn fact that you can only suppress at the cost of the kind of great political violence and cruelty that Montesquieu made it his intellectual mission to oppose. Right. And, and a quick follow-up to that, actually. Um, and you mentioned this actually a bit before, too, which is that you know Montesquieu, of course, uh, thought negatively and pointed out the problems with like a, a larger-scale sort of despotism. You mentioned Russia and things like that. Um, but also, to flip it around, and this is a quote from you in one of your essays, but also democratic republics that were so small and homogenous that they couldn't generate much internal pluralism at all. I think that's interesting to think about the flip side too, because um, in some circles we do hear a lot about the fantasies and the utopias of a small scale community with a small scale government, if any at all, and so on and so forth. And in some ways, I'm being very loose with the term, people think this would be like the, the epitome of sort of a free society or a very liberal one to use the word in a certain way, not getting into that right now. But it, but it is interesting that, as you said, you know, not only was the large-scale despotism a problem, but this small society that can't even generate much pluralism seemed to be a problem with him as well for many reasons. Yeah, small-scale small homogeneity tends to, uh, tends to be oppressive. It tends to demand ongoing conformism and conformity to whatever the relevant local norms are. Montesquieu admired the medium-sized, diverse, heterogeneous commercial monarchies of his era. A place like France is freer than a place like Geneva. Geneva was a tiny, homogenous little city-state, and it was a Calvinist theocracy. France, even France after Louis XIV, even France after the age of religious persecution, uh, France is simply freer, partly because it's more diverse. There are more things that people do and there are more different kinds of places one can be and lives that one can lead than is true in a small, homogenous, democratic city-state. Mm. And now pivoting to what will probably be one of the last sort of bigger pillars of our conversation today, I want to talk about Montesquieu's thoughts and discussion on, on commerce. And you mentioned this earlier before, so we're bringing it back full circle now. And what I found interesting here, and of course, I always say this when we talk about a thinker who's worked all of our listeners, but like, you know, there's no way we're going to cover every single thing in this chat. So I'm just picking a couple of things here. But specifically, one thing that interests me on the commerce pillar is that this idea that he is one of the thinkers that will talk about the beneficial effects of commerce, not necessarily just commerce itself. Uh, specifically, you point to the du com com commerce thesis. So wh why don't we talk a bit about that and what's his contribution there? Sure. Um, well, Montesquieu didn't originate du commerce in the same clearly identifiable way that he 
originated the separation of powers. Um, he's almost certainly the most influential source for it as an idea, certainly as it runs through the rest of Enlightenment thought in the rest of the 18th century. Uh, commerce softens morals. Do is, is soft. Um, and its softening is twofold. It renders more polite what he took to be barbarous morals. Commerce is a source of a kind of civilization. But it also softens in the sense of rendering more gentle, rigorous morals and mores. Uh, For example, the morals and mores of a place like Geneva or of any of the modern states that imagine themselves remaking Sparta places that are devoted to warfare and to the virtue of the citizen soldier. Commerce being opposed to war, being a real rival to war as a way to organize human relations, gives people something that they wish to do with each other other than train to kill each other. And commercial societies will be relatively less warlike than the martial societies that they're replacing. That's crucially the do commerce thesis. And Montesquieu's account of it isn't uncritical or unambiguous. It's not the only thing that he has to say, but it is an important thing that he has to say. To the degree that we seek international peace, international trade is going to be part of that. And international trade will gradually make us less warlike. And some thinkers, someone like Machiavelli, someone like Rousseau, um, that's true and it's a problem. That's one of the reasons we dislike commerce is because it makes us less like good old virtuous Spartan soldiers. Montesquieu retells it as a story of becoming virtuous in a different way. Um, Virtuous not in the sense of self-sacrificing, rigorous willingness to kill other people, but in the sense of an ability to uh, get along better with the whole world. In his account of the rise of commerce in the modern world, particularly the rise of commerce in the modern world since 1500 and the encounter with the Americas, uh, although it is filled with criticisms of the ways that the imperialistic European powers have abused commerce, and have subjected commerce to their military aspirations is still run through with a sense that gradually over time, and particularly intra-Europe, among European countries, the increasingly commercial orientation, the increasing orientation toward trade, is going to be a source for peace as well as for politeness and ongoing polishing of human society and morals. That's excellent. You covered most of the points I wanted to poke into when it came to commerce. The only other one I, I see that I'd like to, to lob over your way back at you is, is also this, this other factor that you point out in your essays, this idea that commerce means essentially to states and rulers that you said that there, there's factors outside of their control. This is interesting. Um, this is back to us discussing before. I, I, I guess in a way we could loosely tie it to this idea where you know some thinkers are, you know, they might have been concerned with the idea of the citizen and, and, the, and the state, but when you throw commerce into the mix, the idea that th- there are factors outside of the control of states and rulers and just the basic idea of a citizen, that, that's quite interesting too. Here again, Montesquieu isn't uh, 
the first to have put his finger on some of these things, but he understands their political importance in in a new way. Uh, he has a brief, just a couple of sentences, but I think very telling account of price controls and the ways that price controls uh, fail. It is not the case that the price of a good is simply something that a legislator or a king can determine, because if he sets the wrong price, then the good won't be made available for sale. But a too low uh, price cap is just a mandated shortage. It's not actually a mandate that will effectively have the good be provided at that price. Uh, that's a way of taking the developing ideas of political economy. And they were at a very early stage. Uh, the spirit of the laws is 30 years before Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. But to take the developing ideas of political economy and the observation of powerful economic forces that arise outside of particular decisions and particular legislative control, and to understand what, what the power of them does to reshape and to some degree constrain political decisions and political possibilities. I have one more question before we move to our formal wrap-up here. And I'll admit this this one's a little unfair. And if someone asked it to me about uh, any of the topics I loved, I would, I would I feel your pain is my point. But let's just say this, Jacob. Let's say someone came to you and said, Jacob, I got two or three hours max. It's the only time I'm going to spend on Montesquieu my entire life. Where should I spend that time? What would you say to that person? Oh, I, I know. I feel. I feel your pain. It's, um, it's been asked to me about to me before too. About now, other things now, that I if, hated. If, if, <laughs> if if I were on a late night talk show and I were in the blurbing business, then I would uh, hear say the thing that has provided the immediate occasion for a conversation, which is um, a little co-authored book called The Essential Enlightenment that I uh, wrote with Doug Denial and Chris Suprenen, uh, in which. Uh, there are sections on Kant, Montesquieu, and Spinoza. And my chapters on Montesquieu there are meant to be an accessible entry point for someone who doesn't have a lot of prior exposure. Uh, I'm not on a late night talk show, and I would much rather that someone actually read some Montesquieu than read some Jacob Levy. Uh, and the truth is, reading the Persian letters isn't going to give you Montesquieu's social and political thought. Um, but reading the Persian letters is going to be a worthwhile use of, you can't do it in two or three hours, but of half a day or two thirds of a day. Uh, and it's, it's one of the great, but one of the underappreciated great works of Western political literature and political satire. So that'll be my, that'll be my real answer. Nice. That works. All right. Well, Jacob, let's move to our formal wrap-up here. You're used to this, so let me say officially to you, I think this is our fourth time, third or fourth time together, but we, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle. As you know, I want to make sure the guest has the last word to put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, in everything, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on who Montesquieu was and why he's important to liberalism? In other words, as I always say, there's one or two or just a handful of takeaways, if anything, from everything, what would those be? What do you want someone to take away? All right. Well, we, we haven't actually talked about liberalism. And I'll, I'll take the concluding time to make my case for the idea that Montesquieu is, uh, is the decisive figure 
to give us something that is recognizably liberalism. And I'll contrast Montesquieu to figures both earlier and later who show up in that conversation. Uh, one later figure is Benjamin Constant, who is deeply indebted to Montesquieu, a, a French thinker of the first decades of the 19th century. And Constant stands out as being the first important political theorist to self-identify with the word liberal. Some people say that, well, that, that linguistic fact is determinate. I don't think the linguistic fact is determined. I think words come along and evolve and take hold when there's something there for them to name. So I think we're going to look sometime before Constant. But things that we see in Constant that help, help us decide what's going to meaningfully be liberalism from then on. Uh, what is it we're looking for to say, here's the thing that Constant comes along to help name? I identify the following cluster. Liberal politics first has a very significant scope for free speech and free religion. At least a very wide religious toleration, if not comprehensive religious liberty. At least a very serious skepticism of state censorship of the content of speech and the press, if not universal and absolute freedom of speech and of the press. That's first. Second is the due process of law, understood in the way that I've been talking about, the protections against imprisonment without trial, punishment without crime, protections against the power of the state being used in lawless ways, civil liberties. That due process understanding of law is, is absolutely critical. It's what we see in the liberal movements to enact bills of rights or charters of rights. It's what we see in even parliamentary systems creating independent judiciaries. Um, it's crucial. Without that, what you have isn't a liberal politics. And a third thing is an appreciation for commerce and commercial society. That doesn't mean liberalism is necessarily absolutely free trade. It doesn't mean liberalism is necessarily laissez-faire. It doesn't mean that liberalism is limited to what we now call classical liberalism or libertarianism. Mm -hmm. um, I think the branches of liberalism that become contemporary left liberalism or Rawlsian liberalism or egalitarian liberalism are still political doctrines for a world of free occupational choice, a world where much of what we do, we choose for ourselves in our private economic lives. It's an appreciation for the diversity and the choices and the possibilities of a world of commerce. So if that's the cluster, if that's what we're looking for sometime before Constant to attach the name to, we clearly find it in Adam Smith. All of that is there in Smith's politics. But now let's go back further, back a century, back to John Locke. In Locke, I think, we not only don't see the express attention to due process of law in the independent judiciary way that I've been talking about, we also don't yet see commerce. Locke is a theorist of property ownership. And property ownership is related to commerce. You can't trade what you don't own. But his concern is with something like stability of possession. 
And you can have stability of possession, security of ownership, without a world where people are buying and selling all the time. Indeed, there are, there are moments of real conflict between too much stability of possession and the ability to have a kind of freewheeling commerce. I don't say that Locke necessarily would have opposed the world of commerce that was coming to be, but I think he didn't see it coming. I think the mid-18th century is relatively different from the late 17th century. And I think Locke's intellectual tools were not the intellectual tools of thinking about commerce and trade as central. Thinking about economic dynamism and change as central. Stability of ownership is a different concern. Who's in the middle? Who is it who has those ideas all at once and who puts them into that cohesive language that becomes liberal constitutionalism. I think it's Montesquieu. I think it's the spirit of the laws. I think that's an excellent way to close off the case and the episode. Uh, Jacob Levy, thank you very much for joining me once again on The Curious Task. Thank you, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.